Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. question when you hear someone refer to someone as a good Samaritan or you hear a storm referred referred to as being uh, of biblical proportions or you hear a statue referred to as a golden calf maybe you hear a reference to a David v Goliath contest or you hear an action characterized as Christ-like how do you as a Christian respond conversational apologetics is really sort of the heartbeat of what I am about. I recognize that God has an interest in every conversation, and I also recognize that as Christians present in those conversations, God has a spokesperson. And so when you hear someone make reference to, or you see a hashtag, or you read a headline, that includes a clear nod to the Bible. I mean, a clear nod to the Bible. Somebody refers to a Good Samaritan you know the backstory there. You actually know the story, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. You've been in the Word of God. You know that story. Tell it. Tell the story. Um, If somebody refers to a storm of biblical proportions, um, you know, or it's it's raining like the days of Noah, um, you know that story. Like, get in there. You are God's person present in that conversation for that particular moment to bring God into the conversation. And so today, when you hear a statue referred to as a golden calf, you need to be the person that's actually prepared to tell the story, the real story, the backstory, the origin story. Um, And so I'm going to give you a reading assignment. It is the entirety of Exodus 32. All of it. You have to read the whole chapter. And let uh, let me just go on record here as saying, I suspect most people don't know the whole story of Exodus 32. Um, Most of us uh, know the story up to the place where Moses comes down the mountain and hears the people uh, singing and then realizes that they're singing to a golden calf that they have had Aaron make. And then Aaron lies about the origins of it um, and says it just, you know, sprang out of the fire. Um, and so we've got all we got layers of sin, layers of sin. What does Moses have in his hands at the time? Well, he has the Ten Commandments, which these two tablets of the testimony written by the very hand of God. And he's so distraught because, by the way, Moses earlier in the chapter has made intercession on behalf of the people and asked God not to destroy them because God already knew they were fashioning for themselves a golden calf. <clears throat> and uh, so Moses, in these Ten Commandments, which, you know, it's important, the lead-off to the, to the Ten Commandments is that we should have no other gods before God, and we should not make an idol uh, in any form um, of that which is on the earth, which is precisely what the people had done. Same issue, by the way, addressed in 
Romans chapter 1, where people exchange the, the worship of God the Creator for the worship of created things. Idolatry is a persistent problem. It, it, it's, true, it's as true today as it was in the days of Moses, all right? Which is why learning to tell the story of Exodus 32 is so important, so that you and I today, when a hashtag golden calf is trending on all social media outlets and is going to be a, a bit of news, particularly um, in left-leaning media today, you and I have to be prepared to be uh, conversational apologists and enter into this conversation today prepared to actually tell the story of Exodus 32, the whole story and nothing but the story. So help us God. So you have a reading assignment today, the entirety of Exodus 32. Get into the Word of God. Let the Word of God get into you in order that God might use you in a conversation today um, in the world that he so loves. Like, let's use the opportunities that the headline news has given us, um, and let's not, you know, let's not mock. Let's actually be people who enter into this conversation in a substantive way, um, because there is a huge warning for the world and a huge warning for you and I contained in Exodus 32. So we better be mindful of it. All right, Adam Holtz is up next from Focus on the Families Plugged In. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In. Welcome back, sir. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Okay. Um, people have been tweeting about my social media feeds have been um, celebratory of, and so I am interested to hear your review of Nomad Land. Yeah, you know, I hope Nomad I'm saying Land. that right. I hope I'm even yeah, saying no, it that's, right. That's right. Uh, Nomad Land is a new movie with uh, Frances McDormand, who, I mean, she's just incredible in in everything that she does. Uh, she, there's just something about her. And and obviously, um, you know, one of her most famous roles is in Fargo, and she has that that accent. I mean, I think that she she's a person that people in your neck of the woods might relate to, if I can, I, maybe that's unhealthy stereotyping. But anyway, I digress. So uh, she plays a woman named Fern, uh, and she loses her husband. And so sort of in a trying to process what's going on uh, in her life, she sells everything and gets a van and just sets out for life on the road. And this is a thing. It's, it's called being a nomad, with nomad being treated as a proper noun. And so she'll go from place to place. She'll do seasonal work. Uh, and she lives out of her van, and it sort of is a movie that digs into a subculture that, unless you're a part of it, you probably don't even know that it exists. And uh, so it really is, uh, I think, a kind of a love letter to looking at a part of our culture that is is very much under the radar. Um, it's an R-rated movie. There's a one scene where. Fern seems to misplace most of her clothes and ends up swimming in a lake, and the camera shows us quite a bit. So this is not a movie that I would necessarily just give a blanket endorsement for. Um, that's probably the biggest content issue here. There are some other things as well. But but it's a movie about, you know, how do we find our way? What do we do with loss? What do we do with the things that 
that we don't know what to do with. And this examines one path that some people take into being a nomad. And it's got apparently uh, a couple of fairly famous people who are sort of uh, celebrity representatives, representatives of this culture in it as well. All right. Nomad land comes with a little bit of a warning. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Disney Plus. First of all, there's all kinds of like pluses out there. I see. Um, <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, there's like. Uh, yeah, yeah. So but Disney Plus um, and, and Disney Plus is now restricting access to classic Muppet Show episodes. They come with these like disclaimers and warning labels. Um, Really not surprising in terms of reaching the point where content warnings um, are up. But, but, you know, it's good for people to know that this is going on. Yeah, it is. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago with some of their older animated movies, and they've expanded that. And, you know, I I think we can say, is it too much? Is this necessary? But their point of view is we want to let people know that there is content that we now consider – uh, potentially racist. And I mean, stuff like Joan Baez doing an Indian accent, Kenny Rogers showing up dressed in, you know, Arab clothing, uh, Johnny Cash performing with a Confederate flag behind him. So these are the sorts of things that that they're talking about. And I will also say, Paul and I were talking before we came on, there's also quite a bit of innuendo and some things that might be kind of shocking if we haven't seen the Muppets for a while that <laughs> that in the 1970s and early 80s wasn't on anybody's radar. So those well, are the and only issues. When, and we weren't watching it with any sort of knowledge of those things. So I do right. think that – I mean I go back and watch things and I think, oh, this will be really fun to watch with the kids. And then I, I'm like – as we're watching it, I'm thinking, oh, I did not remember that all of that was in there. Well, I didn't remember that all of that was in there because when I watched it, that wasn't in there. Like none of that came through to me because I didn't understand any of it then. And I guess at some level I'm hoping they don't understand it now, right? Because short of getting up and turning it off, which of course then makes them wonder, ooh, what might I have just missed, Um, right? Right. Well, and, and we yeah. still have it with animated movies today. It's actually oh, of course. the rare Roger animated... Rabbit? I mean, hello? Oh, yeah. Remember well, her? I... That was like crazy. Yeah. Or or even the stuff in Shrek. I mean, mm. there is all sorts of really ribald joking in Shrek that is totally aimed at adults that my guess is most kids aren't going to get at all. And yeah. And so I think it's an attempt to appeal to parents, too. But it feels it feels cynical to me. You know, it's like we can't trust a good story and fun, pure, innocent characters. We have to dirty it up a little bit so that mom and dad will stay engaged with it too, which I just, I don't like that. No, it's totally unnecessary. Okay. Um, Adam Holtz and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, every headline we're covering is one that you can actually read at pluggedin.com. We're going to start off with how can it be wrong when it feels so right? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family's Plugged In. All right. If you were to bounce over to PluggedIn.com and you were to look at uh, what is currently posted as the lead on the blog, you are going to see um, episode 66 of the Plugged In show. How can something that feels so right be so wrong? 
Boy, it's a great question, right? And I, I think it's a great question because I wrote that headline. So just full <laughs> disclosure here. Um, you know, in our culture, you can, you if you Google that phrase, what is interesting to me is how many different songs have used some kind of iteration of that idea from Debbie Boone to Elvis Presley to the Happy Days theme song. Uh, you know, there's this, there's this idea in our culture that, if it feels good, it has to be right. And I think what has changed in our culture, and this is what we talk about on the show, is that once upon a time when people asked that question, they knew that it was still problematic. You know, it was actually close to a serious question, and there was an attempt to rationalize things that they knew were wrong. And I think that where we've gotten to now in our culture, Carmen, is that emotions have become a subjective form of truth with truth, of course, in quotation marks, um, that we have gotten to the point where what once started as a rhetorical question that we knew the answer to uh, is is a literal one. And so what we do on this episode of The Plugged In Show is just unpack the ways that not only music, but popular entertainment in general invites us to swallow emotional arguments without really thinking about whether they're true or not. And I think the more that we do that, the more desensitized we become to truth and the more likely we are to actually believe that our emotions represent something that is objectively true. And obviously we know that's fairly problematic. So as I'm, uh, as I'm reading this, you list on here some questions to ask kids to help them discern feel-good yeah. messages from truth. Would you just walk us through some of those? Yeah, I think that we can ask really basic questions that push us to evaluate what we see and what we hear. And so those questions that we have listed are, what do you think would happen if somebody actually did that in real life? I think this is a hugely important question because so many times these feel good sort of arguments or plot twists if you take, you know, what happens five minutes after the credits roll, which is the next question, how do you think that their decisions might have affected them? Um, so this idea of consequences, Hollywood is lousy with consequences. They actually often don't want to depict consequential, uh, you know, outcomes because it, it kind of wrecks the feel good moment. Uh, and then just comparing things to scripture. What is what do you think scripture says about some of the emotionally based decisions that these characters have made? And so uh, we think obviously about sexuality, but I mean, revenge movies fall into this category, right? We root for the good guy to take it out on the bad guy. And there are myriad examples of that or, you know, movies that are arguing for euthanasia like Million Dollar Baby. You know, we understand why Clint Eastwood, spoiler warning, decides to pull the plug on Hillary Swank because she has made an emotional argument that her life no longer has uh, meaning. And, and we need to step back and say, OK, wait a minute, time out. Um, how does that line up with what we believe? No, it's really, really good, Adam. Uh, the, li the list of questions um, and then the resources that you post in terms of you know, hey, if you're looking for something beyond this, I'm going to ask the question, what do you think Scripture says about some of the emotionally based decisions that the characters made? You then give us a list and a litany here in this plugged in commentary um, yeah. or blog post um, that we can actually like pull up and use. So thank you yeah. for that as well. That's really, really helpful. All right. You guys also have um, your nominees for the plugged in movie awards. It must be Yay. movie award season. 
it is movie award <laughs> season and we want a piece of that pie. So each year for about, I think this is our 11th or 12th year, uh, about the time awards start rolling up, you know, the Golden Globes and uh, the Oscars and all the rest of them, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, we do our own nominations in four different categories, best movies for kids, for teens, for adults, and best Christian movies. And we post nominations of five of those movies in each category and invite people to vote. And you can vote uh, for which one you would choose on our blog uh, and also on Facebook, our Facebook and Instagram accounts. And then in a couple of weeks, we will announce our winners and uh, the Reader's Choice Awards. I guess we don't officially call them that, but that's what they are. And it's always fun to see where our choice lines up with what our uh, our readers and our listeners have uh, chosen and where they might deviate. So uh, we want to give you just a sense of here are 20 movies from last year in these different categories that we think might be worth your time. And if you come to our blog, you'll see just a, a thumbnail sketch of those movies with a link to the full review. Okay, so let me ask this, because I am currently on PluggedIn.com. I am looking at Plugged In Movie Awards 2021 Best Christian Movies. Yes. If I wanted to vote for one, which, yes. you know, I would have to go watch them all first. I recognize that. But if right. I wanted to vote for one, how would I do that? Just leave a comment uh, uh -huh. down below. Okay. So our mm -hmm. blog has the ability to comment. Um, and so that's the easiest yes, way Greg, to do it. Greg has voted for Switched. Yes. Uh, oh, my gosh. Michael wants to vote for something he saw in 2020. He's clearly not following the rules. Carol also votes for Switched. Bethany votes for Switched. Gabrielle yep. votes for I Still Believe. Um, some people are saying they haven't seen some of them yet, so they want to go watch them and then come back. William says yeah. Switched. Leah says switch. Don says switch. Switched is running the table right now. And Switched the only other votes are table. for I Still Believe. That's it. You got you got votes for Switched and I Still Believe, which means yeah. that if you are a big fan of Fatima or yes. Selfie Dad or what we last when we last spoke, like you need to get on here because your movie is not not getting. Yeah, right. That's, right. There you go. Absolutely. This is how right. this, is and, how this works. <laughs> And so we, the more, the merrier. And if you saw Switched and thought that movie was terrible, yeah, like Carmen says, you got to get on and cast your vote. So it's, 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 you know, it's kind of like American Idol on a much smaller scale. I see. <laughs> so I have seen um, Selfie Dad and I Still Believe. And uh -huh. um, uh, yeah, so I haven't seen the other two. So I'm going to have to go check out the other two before I cast my vote. But yeah. um, I, I really liked both of them. Yeah, and they're very it's, different. And yeah, they're very different, you know, and it's hard. It's hard to not vote for the one that really, really pulls at your heartstrings, right? Like that. Right. Like, like exactly. I loved Selfie Dad, but on this right. list, it's going to be hard for me to elevate that over the one that really pulls at your heartstrings. Right, and, and that's I still believe, which is you know the story of yeah. Jeremy Camp meets a woman, falls in love, she gets cancer. Cancer goes into remission. They get married. Cancer comes back. She dies. He has to deal with it. Spoiler warning. Yeah. Uh, no, I just want um, and it's, So, okay. It's so, hey, can really I tell? Well I, got, I got a listener now who's like, what is Switch? Okay. So, I'm just going to read it. Yeah. Um, here we go. Um, Cassandra Evans is the target of repetitive bullying from the school's most popular girl, Katie Sharp. But Cassandra is sick and tired of being made fun of. She's ready for a change, especially after Katie posts an embarrassing video of her that goes viral. Cassandra tries to practice what her mom has always told her, lead with love. 
But that's a little hard when the person you're supposed to be loving is so horrible. So Cassandra asked God to allow Katie to experience what it's like to live even one day in her shoes. And the next morning, she and Katie get a surprise. They're switched minds. Now the girls have to uh, live their daily routines as the other person. And perhaps along the way, they will both learn what it's like to love your most unlovely neighbor as yourself. There you go. That's the summary of Switched. You can read you more about Switched at PluggedIn.com. And you can uh, vote in this year's Plugged In Movie Awards 2021. There are four categories. All right, Adam, thanks so much, man. Absolutely, Carmen. I'll look forward to talking with you again next week. Likewise. We'll be right back. Thank you. All right, we have Dr. Walter Strickland up next from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we are going to trace together the history of the black church here in the United States of America. We're going to talk about the role um, and effect of suffering on black theology. We're going to talk about the difference uh, between black church development in the North and in the South. We're going to talk about the Great Migration and Jim Crow laws and black liberation theology, and yes, critical race theory and where it fits into today's conversation about the black church. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul urged, may your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love, and may you be able to feel and understand, as all God's children should, how long, how wide, how deep and how high his love really is, and to experience this love for yourselves. This is Max Licato. Let God love you. Let him love you dearly. Let him love you daily. Let him love you deeply. Grab hold of his love and never let go. God is love. One word into the passage reveals the supreme surprise of God's love. It has nothing to do with you. Some people love you because of you, not God. He loves you because he is he. He loves you because he decides to. Self-generated, uncaused, spontaneous, his constant level love depends on his choice to give it. This is Max Locato. Dr. Walter Strickland was born in Chicago, raised in Southern California. His passion is to equip people to flourish in their context um, from a deep commitment to God's design. Um, he, his interests include systematic and contextual theology, the African-American theological tradition, education theory, and the theology of work. He joins us from time to time from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake <clears throat> Forest. Uh, where he lives and works. Walter, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for having me again. Okay, so I'm giving the professor an assignment. Here it is. Trace for us the history of the Black church from its formation to present day. Okay. And that way, that way you can do what you want to do and talk about what you want to talk about on this trajectory, and then I can just check off the questions that I have. Gotcha. Well, that's that's a that's a good task to have. So you know, if we think about the African American Christian tradition, you know, it it uh it, it emerges in America very, very early. So you have the first African Americans arriving on these shores in eighteen or sixteen nineteen rather. 
And then from there, what we understand now is that there were actually Christians coming from Africa to uh, the New World on the Middle Passage. And so there was already uh, Christianity that was uh, emerging in Africa, uh, but we just couldn't really diagnose it or, or not really diagnose, but understand where it was coming from and how much because it was an oral culture and they didn't do uh, demography and statistics and what have you as we uh, trace them now. But so there was Christians who came over. But then what we see is that, um, that the Christian faith continued to sort of develop, uh, not only with uh, slaves sharing the gospel with each other, but also we had, uh, th there was sort of a tussle that was going on as far as uh, slave masters, you know, going back and forth, wondering if they should share the gospel with their slaves. Well, the first reason uh, against it was that they didn't have souls to be saved anyway. But then later, the discussion uh, uh, developed, and, the, and, it, and it transitioned from they don't have souls to, well, if we evangelize them, are they going to want to be free? Uh, as their soul is free, are they going to want their body to be free as well? And this was a challenge because under the, under the rule of the crown, prior to becoming a country in England, if somebody was a slave and then they became a Christian, uh, then their body was to be free as their soul was free in Christ. And so uh, a lot of slave masters didn't want to uh, you know, proclaim the gospel to their uh, slaves because, because basically they, they didn't want them to go free. So they changed the, the, uh, the practices and the laws and they had baptism vows that said, uh, I will uh, essentially... Uh, remain faithful to my earthly master as well as faithful to my heavenly master as well and, and stay enslaved while being a Christian. So, and then during the Great Awakenings, we had a mass number of African-Americans becoming Christian. Uh, and, and then um, it's, it's interesting to see how all this worked out. In the North and the South, you had the church, the African-American sort of church beginning to sort of take some shape. In the South primarily, it was in this, the shadows of plantation. Uh, people call this the invisible institution or uh, these hush harbors, you know, this sort of worship that happened in the, uh, away from the eye of the master where the faith was applied to the challenges of slave life. But then there are also African-Americans who are worshiping in uh, the church's other masters, oftentimes sitting in the balcony or in the back of the church. And so it was really sort of segregation within the, the under the same church roof. Uh, even segregating the Lord's Supper, having whites go first and then blacks go back, which is really just sort of unbelievable because that's the the broken body and shed blood of Christ was precisely why the dividing wall of hostility has been dropped, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, but it was used to demonstrate sort of the stratification within the Christian faith. Um, so, you know, whites first and then blacks second. So then you had African-Americans who were saying, you know what, there's a lot of things going on as we're worshiping with whites that are just very uh, denigrating to our humanity. So what we're going to do is start a new church where we can worship in dignity. And that's what, you know, when um, uh, Absalom Jones and um, Richard Allen in, in Philadelphia established the first black denomination, the AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And then from there, you had the establishment of the black church, which was based out of the fact that they wanted to worship in dignity uh, not because they wanted to be separate necessarily. And so even with the establishment of the um, National Baptist Church, which is, a, with a, which is the largest black Baptist denomination, their first president, uh, uh, Elias Kent Morris, in their, in their first gathering said, you know, 
we begrudge the fact that we have to have this denomination, but it's imperative for us to worship as God has intended. So um, you have the proliferation of black denominations. Uh, but what's happening is if we skip forward to today, uh, when people look at the African-American church, they usually look at it from a purely historical lens or a sociological lens or a political impact, social impact. But very, very, very seldom do we actually think about it theologically, biblically. What was the theology that drove a lot of the activity that has made the black church so sort of prevalent uh, in public life? And so my, my desire is to continue to trace the theology that drove this, especially as it becomes more complex in the, 20, the 20th century with the emergence of black liberation theology, which really doesn't reflect the, 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 the Christianity of the pew in the church so much as it reflects more about what's going on in the academy. And so, um, and right now we're, we're sort of sitting in the midst of a lot of misunderstanding because folks like uh, James Cone are assumed to be what it means to be black and Christian or a theologian, but his theology is really not the theology of the uh, person in the church or the average pastor preaching on a Sunday morning in a black church. And so, uh, Carmen, I'm going to let you fire away a little bit because I was trying to condense it as much as I can, but I think I even went too long. No, you, I think you did a great job. Again, I am talking with Professor Walter Strickland. We're talking about the history and development of African-American Christianity here in America. Um, we have many of us watched the Black Church um, short series on PBS. We had a lot of questions coming out of that in terms of, you know, regional differences and perspectives that might be misunderstood, um, liberation theology. Um, is that, you know, like true for people in the pews or, you know, that's more an academic place? You've answered that question. Um, why don't we take a very brief break and we come back. Let's do um, let's do some things that are kind of going on right now in terms of the conversation um, in the United States of America uh, on the faith front. Um Maybe you can explain to us, Walter, um, CRT, critical race theory, and if and where it fits into this larger conversation. Could we do that? Oh, for sure. I'd love to. Okay, that'd be really helpful. All right. Dr. Walter Strickland and I will be right back. All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Walter Strickland from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We are talking about the development of the African-American church or the black church here in the United States of America. Um, Walter, uh, one of the questions that comes up frequently and I think is a really, really misunderstood part of the conversation is CRT or critical race theory. So I recognize that it would take a really long time for us to completely unpack this, but can you help us understand what it is and maybe where it fits into this conversation? Yeah, so critical race theory is just it's simply that it's a system of beliefs that uh, attempt to explain why things are the way they are in the sense that uh, after the civil rights movement, there were some scholars of law <clears throat> who were trying to figure out, okay, our laws are are equal now, um, but at the same time, we have a disproportionate amount of African-Americans who are going to prison or being convicted of certain crimes and this and that. So the idea was to try to figure out why that was. And so they critically looked at legal practice and legal code to try to figure out how that was. And so um, 
that's that's the that's the that's the the under undergirding sort of uh, desire of critical race theory, and um, you know there's there's been a lot of conversation about its origins, uh, about its being Marxist in origins, and a lot of the contemporary sort of uh, Christian uh, evangelical conversation, uh, which is not quite true because Derek Bell, uh, it's one of its uh, earliest. Um, Sort of, uh, I don't want to say the, I don't want to say the father of CRT, but if it had one, that's who it would be. He doesn't really read much of Marx, but really the reality was that he was really trying to get at, um, okay, so what? How is it that African Americans are still being disproportionately uh, convicted of crimes or what have you? And so with CRT, it's uh, it's now this sort of enterprise where. There's a bunch of scholars trying to do this sort of critical work, uh, looking through to, uh, and trying to find out ways in which society is still sort of slanted towards and you know uh, engaging or even providing some benefit to people who are uh, who are not African American. And so um, th that's really the the, the undergirding ethos of it. It's not a monolithic reality. Uh, in fact, that there's about a 650-page book with uh, a bunch of different authors that came out called Critical Race Theory in the Academy just last year, which shows how much diversity is even within that. But if I can try to define it uh, or, or say what it does, um, so if you look at a vehicle, many of you have uh, uh, the little indicator lights that pop up that tell you something wrong on your car. Uh, that's kind of what CRT is trying to do, put its finger on where in society and on what in society is sort of giving African-Americans and other people of color a, a difficult time. Um, and that's in contrast, I'll even add, to the GPS. So the GPS kind of gives us, okay, here we are, this is where we go from here. I think many Christians misunderstand CRT to be the GPS, but it's not trying to say, like how to go somewhere and where you're going, it's just trying to give us the indicators of places to explore to figure out where this, the idea of racialization exists. And so um, what, what ends up happening is that CRT tries to put its finger on those places, and then the person who is engaging in this exploration tries to fix those issues with their worldview. And so uh, while I'm not a thoroughgoing proponent of CRT, I, I, I do as somebody who says, okay, scripture is my authority. Under the authority of the word of God, how can I then engage, uh, you know, areas in society that we do see these um, uh, inequalities uh, in a way that is commensurate with the Bible, but also I've, I've read a lot of other people who are trying to do similar work in other fields. And so if you, if you look at the African-American Christian tradition, there is a strong deliverance theme throughout. So there's a, there's a, there's a uh, you know, if, if African-Americans are reading the Bible, the, the reality of the Exodus is going to be primary. This, that's gonna be a, a very central feature in the reading, this deliverance. And so uh, as African-Americans have continued to read scripture uh, and look at the world in which we live in, uh, one thing that we've been very keen towards is trying to figure out, okay, how do we get to a place that is more kingdom-like? Where, where all God's children are in a place where they can flourish. And um, I think it's often assumed or mistaken that the African-American Christian tradition has been one that's been sort of shot through with CRT, but it hasn't. That's based upon a reading of the Bible. And earlier I was talking about how liberation theology, uh, which is really a, a uh, academic discipline, 
is not what goes on in the pew because what goes on in the pew is seeing the heart of God to deliver his people in the scriptures. And then Christians then go out and do likewise in society from there. And so what I'm trying to say is that CRT in recent years, but in the past two decades, has had some impact in the academy upon African-American theology. But in the pew, it really hasn't had much at all. And that's really just the uh, deliverance theme that we've seen throughout the entirety of the African-American Christian tradition uh, uh, impacting its movement even now. Okay, that that is really helpful. Um, I think that one of the things that I hear and experience are um, people who simply respond in a in a visceral, emotional, extremely negative way to the letters uh, CRT or the phrase critical race theory, um, and then they don't even allow for a conversation about what one means when one is using that phrase, it's a little bit, um, in my experience, like trying to talk about the reality that Black Lives Matter, um, all small caps, versus Black Lives Matter, all uh, large caps, um, and meaning some sort of group and and actually particular um, agenda. So I really appreciate how you have helped us see critical race theory as like the indicator lights. Um and, you know, frankly, people don't like light. They don't like things that are pointed out that are dark, um, that have been dark. Some they would like to keep some of the darkness in the dark. Um, and so uh, that is helpful. That's going to be a helpful image for me to use. Um, I'm going to be able to say, look, you know, I'm not talking about critical race th- theory at the level of it's driving the car and it's the GPS and it's, you know, it's our, it's our new guidance system. You know, the Bible is still our guidance system, but there are some indicator lights here um, that we need to pay attention to. And if we don't confess sin that is, you know, that is revealed when we, sub- when we are subjected to the light, then we just become lovers of darkness. And that's not who we want to be, not who we're called to be. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because with CRT, you know, obviously it's not it's not scripture and so it's not perfect. So sometimes you have an old car who's like who lights indicator lights flicker a little bit. You gotta gotta ignore it. But there's for the most part, it it, it is well that there are some helpful aspects to it. And so that you know, and that's and that's the great thing about being a Christian who loves the the word of God, who operates under its authority. I'm not scared to interact with any uh, idea that's that's outside of it because I'm already settled on, on what my authority is, the inerrant and fallible word of God. And then um, I, I, I do understand some of the visceral response to those letters CRT, because some of CRT's most visible proponents have been very, uh, you know, uh, uncharitable in some of their engagement with uh, people that they would perceive as being racist. And so that's also where, you know, if there's a, if there is this, if the scripture is saying, yes, this, this is a place where we have to engage biblically, the scripture also gives me the the admonition to love my neighbor. It also gives me the admonition to to treat people as I want to be treated. Uh, it's given me you know, the 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 instruction that these are image bearers uh, who are who are prone towards you know um, misunderstanding and things like this. And so, as a Christian, uh, I you know I, I do begrudge how some proponents of CRT have engaged uh, folks that they would perceive as racist because it doesn't exhibit the love of Christ that I think should. Be characteristic of any uh, Christian engagement in, uh, in public life. 
Absolutely. All right. We really appreciate the work that you are doing to help us uh, learn to talk with one another um, and to learn to appreciate one another's uh, heritage and history as we move forward together as the kingdom people of God in this generation. Like we 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 have to do better. Um, and in order to do better, um, you know, we got we got to learn where we've been and where our ideas have come from, um, because some of those need to be unlearned in order that we might uh, be recatechized in uh, in what scripture really does have to say about who we are as image bearers um, and as brothers and sisters in Christ. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution to the conversation today and helping us understand, you know, the history and progression um, of the black church in America. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we really appreciate it. That's Dr. Walter Strickland. You can find him at walterstrickland.com. We'll be right back. Well, all righty, the next time we talk, it's going to be March. Wow. All right. Have a great weekend. Bring God back into the conversation today in ways that honor Jesus. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.